Hi, I'm Caitlin. Um, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter five, chapter five, um, verses thirteen to twenty tonight. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." Let me add my welcome to Dave's, especially if you're new or visiting. It's great to have you with us as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, this um, famous Sermon of Jesus uh, in Matthew 5-7. to uh, Before I pray and we look at what has just been read for us, uh, just one other quick announcement in terms of Christianity Explored. So that's our seven-week course that we run constantly throughout the year, giving options for people to think about what it means uh, to follow Jesus uh, what is Christianity about? Um, we run these regularly. Uh, Naomi Page will be starting one um, soon. Uh, we hope that others will start in the next few weeks. Um, you could speak to Sam Madavi or myself about that. If we have a couple of people that are keen, um, we will start a group at any point. So if you've got a friend that's thinking about it or maybe yourself, you're not sure where you stand uh, with the Christian faith, we'd love you to uh, chat to us. And it's a relaxed setting. We run in a lounge room, have supper, eat food together, watch a video, and think about the questions that arise out of that and um, explore what it means uh, to follow Jesus. So uh, keep that in mind. But let me pray for us now as uh, we come to look at this passage in Matthew 5. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather tonight. We thank you for your word to us. And we acknowledge that it, it challenges us, and Jesus certainly challenged his first hearers. And as you apply your word to our hearts and minds tonight, we ask that your spirit would convict us, help us to see how we might live in a way that honors Jesus if we're following him, or if we don't know him yet as Lord and Savior, that we might see what it means to uh, put him in charge of our life and follow his example. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, salt, it just seems like an everyday thing these days, part of the fabric of life. And so maybe it surprises you, therefore, that back in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago, salt was actually a valuable commodity. It was much rarer. It was expensive. So much so that soldiers in the Roman Empire could be paid in salt. In fact, the word salary that we use today comes from the Latin word sal for salt. You see, when a soldier was doing a lousy job, his paycheck could be cut, which is how we got the expression, not worth his salt. They wouldn't get their full pay. 
Now, historically, um, salt's value came from its ability to preserve food in the ancient world without refrigeration. It was uh, super valuable, and in fact, wars were fought over it as a result. A lot of the wealth of Venice, for example, came from fighting over salt. But of course, today, salt is just so common. It's everywhere. It's inexpensive. We've learned to extract it here, there, and everywhere in the world. And so it's placed on every dinner table. It's on every table in a restaurant and so on. And of course, today, largely we use it for flavor for our food, not so much preservation. And um, so much so, I guess, that we're told to cut down on our salt intake these days by health professionals, which is especially present in fast food. Uh, but some of us just love adding this mineral to our meals nonetheless. And so I think as we look at the world today, we assume, well, salt's not used for preservation anymore. It's just about flavor. That's how it gets used, right? Well, maybe you're surprised to know then that the number one use of salt in the United States isn't on food at all in most countries in the world. In 2016, for example, 44% of salt in the United States went to de-icing roads. That's right. They just dump it out of trucks and plow it everywhere, stick it on the street because it lowers uh, the melting point of the mixture when applied to snow and ice, helps them more quickly to make the roads secure and safe for people to drive on it. And so you'll see tons of it being thrown around the Northern Hemisphere every winter. But back in the first century, that was not the case. You certainly wouldn't use it that way. It was too valuable. And so its properties, especially of preservation, made it a really apt metaphor that gets picked up a lot in the Bible. It's used for many themes, and of course Jesus references it in our opening sentence of the section we're considering tonight. But before we come to that, this section naturally flows on from what we saw last week in the Beatitudes. Jesus just started this Sermon on the Mountain to his disciples, and he lays out this radical teaching, which is so different to the world around him then as it is today. And so then in this section, Jesus is wanting his followers to grasp how important it is to live out these uh, character traits of being in his kingdom, these values that God approves in his followers. Having given the teaching, he wants people to really give themselves to standing out in the world by following that. And so the question I want us to consider tonight from our passage is this, how are Christians to be a clear witness to God in the world? How are Christians to be a clear witness to God in the world? Two answers to that question. First one is this, by standing out through our deeds. By standing out through our deeds. Have a look again from verse 16, how Jesus begins this section. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they place it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, let's unpack this a little. Firstly, in verse 13, Jesus states that his followers are the salt of the earth. As I mentioned, in Christ's time, it was primarily about being a preservative, keeping food 
so that it would last longer, but it was also used for flavoring in that day too. And so disciples of Jesus, if they were to be true followers of him, will actually do both things, spiritually speaking. They'll make the earth a more palatable place, a more salty, flavorsome place. They'll also make it a purer place by stemming the tide of moral decay. They'll be a preservative in society, if you like. But you can only do this as long as you preserve the distinctive character that you should have as a follower of Jesus. Like salt, you have to be fit for purpose. As Jesus goes on to warn, if salt loses its saltiness, it has no more value. It's useless to anyone. Now, to do a little bit of chemistry for a moment, strictly speaking, pure salt, sodium chloride, can't lose its salinity. But the impure kind of salt dug from the shore of the Dead Sea in Jesus' day was very impure matter, and the little salt that was in it could easily be leached away and it could become pretty useless. And then it was thrown out on the street, like Jesus said, and just walked over it. It had lost any purpose at that point. It was thrown out. But when it was being effective, when it had its distinctive qualities, then, as I mentioned earlier, it was a great metaphor for many themes that the Bible unfolds. One of them was wisdom. It was seen as a good example of wisdom because by following Jesus and his example, you stood against the world's values, which were unwise. It's funny that the Greek language picked this up because the Greek word translated lost its taste actually means literally became foolish. It works this way. A foolish disciple is one who has lost their influence on the world, who does not stand out any longer, one who has lost their saltiness, their impact on those around them, their distinctive witness. And as a follower of Christ, that is not to happen. We're meant to maintain our witness always. How we live before others in this world matters. Now think with me a moment about this, the influence, the impact you can have either for good or for bad. Let's set aside Christians for a moment and think more generally about society. Think about Australian society, which you'll know something of. One of our leading social commentators a few years ago, Hugh Mackay, had this summary of Australian culture on Australia Day. He wrote, we might wish others would praise our tolerance, our harmonious and egalitarian society our willingness to help each other out in a crisis, our fighting qualities, our resourcefulness, our rule of law, our stable institutions. But, he wrote, national stereotypes are rarely that kind. We rather might find ourselves being caricatured from those outside for our racism, our triumphalism, our copying of the United States, the chip that we have on our shoulder at times, our tall poppy syndrome, our harsh treatment of refugees, or even our ugly reputation for sledging on the sporting field. The truth, he wrote, is the truth about all human societies. We're complex. We're self-contradictory. We're a mixture of all these factors, attractive and unattractive. The arsonists who light bushfires in Australia are as much a part of who we are as the firefighters who risk their lives to put them out. Well, maybe you might disagree with a thing or two that Hugh said, but he's gained something, hasn't he? he grasped something of the essence of who we are. But you start to cringe, don't you, at the second half of the description. We don't want to be known that way. Think about it then 
more specifically for the Christian, isn't the issue far more acute? I mean, in the end, does it matter what somebody overseas thinks about Australian society? Probably not much, but it matters a lot what the non-Christian friend of yours at work or in your sporting team or in your family thinks as they look at you. We know the challenge of this. Our society is watching us all the time. And those that are closer to us get that close-up view of when things are not going so well in our life. How do we respond then? Are we any different to the next person who's not a Christian? You see, at those moments, we can either malign the gospel because we're a really bad witness, we don't point people to Jesus at all, or we can adorn the gospel because they see something different in the way we respond, in the way we're a witness and shine forth in those moments. Well, Jesus is not content just at verse 13 to think about how we're to be a witness in the world with this theme of salt. He's got another metaphor in verses 14 to 16, that of light. He states, verse 14, that you are the light of the world. Now that is a statement that we're used to hearing Jesus say of himself in John 8. But here as Christ's followers, we also are to be a light to the world. We're to stand out. And he's got two examples, hasn't he? Two sources of light. The first in verse 14, uh, about a city on a hill. The second one, about a lamp that's placed on a lampstand. Now, I think the first one sort of leaves us a little bit flat. We're used to, you know, electric light everywhere. We're used to being able to walk in the dark in a city at night because the whole place is lit up. It may as well be daytime. But think back in the ancient world where there was very little light. Maybe there's an oil lamp or a candle and there's a village or a small city on the top of the hill. Imagine it's a cloudless night, uh, a cloudy night rather, and you, ca- you have no moonlight to see by. You are in utter pitch darkness. That light on the hill from the city will be the only way that you'll ever be able to find your way around and be guided to your destination. It's a powerful example of light shining out and providing a direction and guidance for others. And in verse 15, Jesus continues the metaphor and makes it a bit more homely and domestic and talks about a lamp. He talks about the ludicrous situation of somebody actually smothering a lamp. It was usually an oil lamp in those days. It'd have a small wick. If you covered it with a bowl, then immediately your lamp would probably go out. It'd waste some of what you had. And it seems like a small thing. How powerful is a light like that? Not very much. But in a single household, it is enough to shine all around the house. And then in verse 16, Jesus gives us the punchline for all this. Why this metaphor? Or the application he brings. In this context, we don't read about personally confronting the world's injustices, taking on the world's institutions that are doing the wrong thing. He doesn't even announce that we need to directly proclaim the good news in this section. Rather, the light that we are to be is our good deeds. It's all about our words and our actions performed by Jesus' followers in a way that at least some people around us will recognize that we are sons and daughters of our God. And the result will be, Jesus says, that they will glorify God. That is, that they will praise him because of the example, the help that they see and receive from Christians. Now, we often call this lifestyle evangelism today in Christian circles. That is, living out your Christian faith before others in a clear manner. And Jesus says we must stand out in this world. It's not an optional extra. We can't just blend in with those around us. 
But sadly, because of the nature of our society today in Australia, a lot of Christians want to do just that, right? They don't want to stand out because they attract a lot of negativity or comments, ready to be shot down by those that are dismissive of the Christian faith today. And so people just want to blend in. They just want to be like their non-Christian neighbour. But if that is the case, then we have failed to follow Jesus. That is not what Christ calls us to. We're to stand out, we're to be a witness, we're to be a light that just has to be seen. Can't avoid standing out as a believer if we're serious. The way we live matters. There's a poem which captures something of this, which says this, You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People read what you write, whether faithless or true, say what is the gospel according to you. Now, Jesus is challenging his followers to stand out. And as I mentioned, he doesn't talk here about having to explain the good news at this point, but he's certainly not dismissing that. That's something that comes out a lot in the Gospels. And we know when we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, we have the Great Commission, where he announces that the good news must be proclaimed to all nations, disciples made from all people. But in this particular part, as he talks about the character of somebody who belongs to his kingdom, he's focusing on what we look like, how we speak, how we act. And I think even so, perhaps as you hear that, you think, oh, a Christian is supposed to go around drawing attention to themselves. Will we look like we're just parading our virtues or something? No, that's not the point at all, is it? Because in verse 16, Jesus said, this is all about glorifying your Father in heaven. It's not about you, it's about pointing people to God so that they may see through you an example of somebody that lives differently, that points them elsewhere to our great God. That brings me to a second answer to this question tonight, second answer of how Christians can be a witness in our world today, not only by our good deeds, but secondly, by pursuing God's commands in response to his grace, by pursuing God's commands or laws in response to his grace. So notice where Jesus goes next from verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This last part of our passage tonight involves Jesus explaining the relationship between this radical teaching that he's unpacking through this sermon and all of the Old Testament law which had come before. Every Jew that was hearing him in the first century recognized that the Old Testament was authoritative. So how are they to understand what Jesus is teaching? Where does it fit with what they already have in the Old Testament? Well, this passage here, Jesus is saying these things in what is really an introduction to his Sermon on the Mount. We need to grasp that firstly. I think the body of his teaching, all the ethical demands that are going to follow, come from verse 21, and we're going to unpack them from next week. But in this first section, we get this general listing of the Beatitudes 
and then the call to live it out that we've just seen, and then where that fits in the big picture. So this is part of his introduction. He's trying to orientate his followers to how we understand what he's teaching in relation to the Old Testament. Now, that would have been an important question for Jews in the first century, as I just mentioned, but it's a big question for us today if you haven't discovered already. Christians have struggled with their relationship with the Old Testament and the law for the last 20 centuries. And we often end up in extremes at times. On the one hand, there can be believers who want to dismiss the Old Testament altogether as something they don't need to read. They'll say, oh, but it's all about grace now. It's all about God's love in Christ. And if you talk to me even about the laws, it'll just um, invoke legalism and we don't need to hear that. Why do we even need to teach from the Old Testament? Just focus on the Gospels. Tell me about Jesus. Then at the other extreme of the spectrum, you might say, there are those that are trying so hard to fulfill all 613 regulations and commands in the Old Testament. It's almost like they're trying to live as a Jew today. They're really strict about the food they eat. They're trying to only do certain things on the Sabbath day, etc., etc. And they look down on other Christians and say, well, they're worldly. They're not living out the laws. They should be. The Old Testament still applies. Well, how are we to understand our relationship with it? Is it one of those two or is it something in between? Well, notice what Jesus says, verse 17. He refers to the law and the prophets, firstly. That's a shorthand way of just referring to the whole Old Testament. The law, the first five books, the prophets, the rest. And what he says first up is that he hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament. That is, he's not going to reject it completely at all. Rather, what he's teaching is in continuity with what has come before. Jesus' teaching, even here on the Sermon on the Mount, is in alignment with the Old Testament revelation. It's not something completely new, unconnected with the past. But not only that, but what we see as we understand Jesus' life and his teaching further as things unfold is that Jesus can obey God's laws in the Old Testament perfectly in a way that we never can. More than that, he explains it. He is our interpreter, for he is the one that not only completes the law, but helps us to understand it. And what we'll see from next week was that an external regulation approach, ticking boxes as the Pharisees did, was not the intention of the law ever. In fact, what the law was seeking was a real response from the heart. And so Jesus is going to raise the bar from next week about how we understand the laws and regulations in the Old Testament, because he is the right and true interpreter of God's word. And this is what it means to fulfill, really, in this um, end of verse 17. Jesus is the final revelation of God. He fulfills God's law. He interprets God's law. Indeed, he transcends it in a way that some things reach their completion in him and are no longer needed in the way they were understood by the Jews. It was a sign, all of the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus. It in, reaches its culmination in him. And that's why he says in verse 18 that the Old Testament cannot be abolished or ignored. If you got rid of the Old Testament, then it is the very thing that points us to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, that shows that he's the fulfillment, he's the one that we've waited for. So it certainly can't be removed. It will always have that role of pointing us forward to Christ. More than that, the final phrase in verse 18, notice, is until everything is accomplished. That can be literally translated, until what it looks forward to 
arrives. And so in verse 19, Jesus warns the disciples against altering and setting aside parts of the law. What Jesus is saying, if you like to paraphrase it, is that a Christian who disrespects the Old Testament makes for a poor Christian. The good disciple, rather, will be guided by the Old Testament in his life and teaching. Notice Jesus uses that phrase in his practice and teaching there in verse 19. But how is it a guide for us? How are we to understand the different parts of it? You know, if we're left to our own thinking even at that point, okay, Jesus, it's important, but how is it important? How do I take it on? What is my relationship day to day? We'd be lost if we were just still in our own thinking, if we were trying to be the authority on this. We're used to lots of experts today in our world, aren't we? We specialise down to little areas and we have an expert on every little bit that can help us and guide us. It's helpful. But, of course, we want the person to actually know what they're talking about. They can't be expert in name only. I used to work for a small environmental consultancy firm and uh, we focused on soil and water quality, particularly with regard to housing developments around Sydney. And the boss that I worked for was an absolute expert in this field and he would uh, speak at government conventions and he would go and do lectures at universities at times and uh, outline what needed to happen. Well, one day he double-booked himself. He was meant to do an, a lecture at UTS at the University of Technology in Sydney um, and he couldn't do it. And he said, oh, no problem, you go off and do it, Rod. And I'm thinking, great, okay, I guess I have to. And as I was going up the lift, uh, getting ready, thinking through the slides that I had to do, it was dawning on me how this was not going to be a good moment. I was supposed to be going in as the expert with all authority to speak to these people. There was going to be 30 or 40 people from government, uh, local councils from all around Sydney who were experts in this area, who'd worked in this space for decades perhaps. And I was going to be the one to tell them how to do it. And I was thinking, well, what if they asked me a hard question? All I could come up with as I was getting the slides ready was, that's a really good question. If we've got time, we'll come back to that at the end. And, and we're not coming back to it at the end, right? I'm going to keep talking and talking. Sorry, we're out of time, people. I hope that was good. But that's not the expert you need, right, at that point. That doesn't help you as you try and navigate the law in the Old Testament, something that Christians have stumbled over for centuries. So when it comes to the law, we need Jesus, our expert, the Word of God made flesh as our expert guide. And as we think about this, we need to realise that we not only need to take in what Jesus says in these four verses, but we need to see what he says elsewhere in the Gospels about the law and the relationship of believers to it. Some people will read verses 18 and 19 and think that those that are trying to fulfil all 613 regulations have got it right. Look, he says it's unalterable. You can't dismiss any of it. You don't set it aside. We must have to do it all. But then Jesus himself says that some parts of the law have been made obsolete with his coming. He is the fulfilment and they're no longer necessary. They pointed forward to him, but they've reached their conclusion. Let me give you an example. For example, with regard to ceremonial uncleanness and the food laws, Mark 7, verses 18 and 19. Jesus speaking with some of the uh, teachers of the law and his disciples are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body? In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. 
If you're a Jew listening to that, your jaw has just dropped to the ground. You've been eating kosher food for centuries. This is a hugely important part of those 613 rules. It's under the ceremonial law, all the food regulations. You have to do things this way. How can Jesus dismiss all that in a sentence? Well, because it finds its fulfillment in him. These things were meant to point people to the holiness of God, their need to do things in a correct manner, to see their unworthiness, their unholiness before a perfect God, to point them to their need of a saviour. And as Jesus, the saviour, comes, they don't need food laws anymore. They need Christ. And so if we come back to verse 19 for a moment, you could paraphrase it this way, I think. A Christian who rejects the Old Testament is an immature Christian, while the praiseworthy Christian is guided by the Old Testament and will teach others accordingly. But what is the guidance then? If Jesus can say that some bits are complete, how are we to navigate those 613 laws and commands and know which ones we really need to be key on? Well, this was an issue for the Reformers 500 years ago. As the Reformation started in Europe and you had this huge body of work, which was the Old Testament, how are we to think about that as a believer? Well, there are three major sections of the law. There's the ceremonial laws that I just spoke about with regard to food, but also more broadly the sacrificial system, the sacrifices that need to be brought to the temple, the priests and the rules around them and how they were offered the sacrifices. If all those laws were still in place and we need to obey them tonight, then it would be quite messy up here. I'd be sacrificing some animals, and thankfully that's not happening, right? There's all of that ceremonial law, but that is particular to that time preparing them for the once-for-all lamb, the Lord Jesus, who came and made a full stop for that system. But then there's the civil law. That's the second major section, and that relates to all the judicial rules about the nation-state of Israel. Christians today are not part of a nation-state, if you haven't worked that out already. We're spread all around the world in many districts and provinces, and we have our own local judicial system, which, mind you, is based on the law that was given to the Jews. We talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage. But you don't need to follow the rule of what you do if someone steals your cow. Or what if happens if you, uh, by accident, injure somebody and you run to a city of refuge? They had lots of rules about those things as part of the judicial system in the Old Testament. Don't need to worry about that either. Which leaves us with the third and final section, which we do need to be conscious of each and every day. And that is God's moral law. The moral law contained in the Ten Commandments and many other commands beside that talk about the all-time right and wrong understanding of our words and our actions. These things are eternal. They don't stop with the nation of Israel. They continue to us today. And so we have to read the gospel, uh, sorry, read the Old Testament and the laws through the grid of the gospel and Jesus' teaching that we might rightly understand it. You might say, well, I, I'm not given all of that in verses 17 to 20 here from Jesus. How am I to grasp some of those things? Well, we do have a hint towards it in verse 20. Did you notice that? Jesus clearly shows here in verse 20 at the end of this section that he's not suggesting a legalistic approach to the Old Testament. He notes that the Pharisees had one and that they failed and that he wants our righteousness to exceed or surpass the Pharisees. Now, if you were trying to obey regulations, you're never going to surpass the Pharisees. I mean, they were working out each day whether they could 
tithe a tenth of their mint and their dill that they were growing on their little garden next to their window. They were trying to follow every regulation down to the nth degree. If we have to surpass them, then we're never going to do it if that's what it looks like. Now, Jesus must be speaking about a righteousness of a different kind, a righteousness that is distinct from that box-ticking approach that we can never fulfill. And the New Testament helps us at many places on this. Let me take you to one famous one. The Apostle Paul writes and asserts in Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So notice here that although this righteousness is apart from the law, separate from the law, it was actually predicted or testified to by the law and the prophets. They were always pointing forward to the grace of God in the Messiah that would come. The law can't save you or I. It simply shows up our sin. It holds up a mirror and we can never meet the perfect standards of our holy God. But... Once we are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus, once we are justified by God's grace, his undeserved favour in paying our debt before him through the perfect fulfilment of the law by Jesus, then the Old Testament moral law becomes very helpful to us. It helps us in our sanctification. No person is ever justified by the law, but once they trust in Jesus, it then helps them to grow in godliness as they mature as a Christian, as they seek to live out all the moral teaching that God has given us through the old covenant. And that's why, as you understand that and grow as a believer, more and more you will see the commands and regulations that relate to the moral teaching in the Old Testament as precious to you. They're not some burden that weigh you down that you have to fulfill to be saved, for they cannot. They are a guide, a light to you, that you might live in the way that pleases God. Then you'll be able to say with King David, as he said in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Is that your attitude as you read the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments? It should be. This is what we are to understand as believers today. And this is the link between the two sections that we're considering tonight. How are to be Christ's witnesses in the world, being salt and light? Well, by knowing God's will for our lives, by understanding his commands in the Old Testament of how we might live in a way that pleases him. Not to earn our salvation, but to live in the light of God's love that we've already received by grace. Our book of the term is by Jen Wilkin, as you heard last week. Her book is called Ten Words to Live By, and what it's doing is unpacking the Ten Commandments. She has this beautiful quote about this very point. Christians have been taught, she writes, with good reason to fear legalism. Legalism is a terrible blight as evidenced in the example of the Pharisees. But in our zeal to avoid legalism, we have forgotten the many places the beauty of the law is extolled for us. 
We should love the law because we love Jesus and because Jesus loved the law. Obedience to the law is the means of sanctification for the believer. You see, as we think about the good deeds that God has prepared in advance for us to do, we need to realize that they can only flow from a changed heart. We have to have come to trust in his son, the Lord Jesus, and his fulfillment of the law on our behalf. But if we're to follow him, we're to understand that law, we're to seek to strive to be obedient day upon day so that we will then be a light and salt. People will see us and think, you're living differently. Why don't you speak like everyone else? Why are you acting in a way that works against you, which is selfless, which is serving others rather than yourself? These things will only come as we understand God's word, as we obey his commands and seek to live in the light of it. Then we truly will be light in the darkness. Truly then people will see us and think they are different and praise our heavenly Father. Will you join me in praying? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray this night that you would help us to obey your word that you would enable us to get on with the good deeds that you have prepared in advance for us to do because we are growing in our likeness to your Son as we respond to your word, as we understand your law, your commands, as they teach us. Help us to live in the light of them in response to the salvation we've already received by faith. Lord, help us not to dismiss your holy word but see its beauty see its precious nature to guide us in this world, that we might truly be different, that we might stand out and live as your people in a world so desperate to know your love, your way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.